I'm Christine. And I'm Alan. We'd like to thank you for tuning in to our discussion this week. Our hope is that we'll share some information that you will find helpful. So now we invite you to join us as we together listen listen for for the the word. Hi, everybody. Welcome to our podcast today. We are uh, in the book of Luke, uh, chapter 20, verses 27 through 38. And I believe that this requires a little bit of background because it kind of takes us out of our, out of our, just our, our normal um, progression that we've been in. Yeah, it does. Yeah. Our gospel lesson this week comes after quite a break in Luke's narrative. But more than that, I would say there's a whole lot more than meets the eye here. Uh, It's not just a question of differing views on the resurrection. I I would say what's at stake here is nothing less than the authority of the Torah, the temple, and those who claim to represent them over against the authority of Jesus, the kingdom of God he has proclaimed, and the call he has issued to live according to the kingdom. Mm. Wow, that's uh, uh, already, I think that's going to be a bigger space than maybe we had assumed. When you you first read it, you just think it's a question about the resurrection. Okay, so head on. So a lot has taken place in Luke's narrative since last week's gospel lesson. Uh, Jesus has entered Jerusalem where he has, was hailed as the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Uh, Jesus weeps over Jerusalem and predicts that they will not leave within you one stone upon another because they did not recognize the time of uh, your visitation from God. Then he clears the temple of those who were using it to sell things, insisting that my house shall be a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of robbers. So... You know, prior to this, we had been on our journey to Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. So now we're in Jerusalem, we're in right? Jerusalem. So That's that right. mentally shifts my mm-hmm. mind about where we're at with right. this whole process. Okay. Right. We are in Jerusalem. Okay. And, you know, Joel Green uh, argues persuasively in his commentary on Luke's gospel that these events are tied to the message of Luke's gospel. Uh, Jesus' entry to Jerusalem confirms that he is indeed the king who comes in the name of the Lord, as was predicted by Gabriel to Mary. Mm. If you go back to Luke 1, 32 and 33, you see that language very much uh, reflected in Gabriel's pronouncement to Mary. Uh, Jesus' prediction of the destruction of Jerusalem points toward the end of the city as the focal point for Jewish faith and society, especially since it includes the destruction of the temple. And it is for that reason, perhaps, that Jesus intentionally omits to call the temple a house of prayer for Mm -hmm. all peoples, because that's the full quotation of Isaiah 56-7. And uh, again, Green argues that the vision of the kingdom is no longer one of all peoples coming to Jerusalem to worship, which you find in Isaiah chapter 2 and Micah chapter Mm -hmm. 4, for example. But rather, it's a vision of the mission of God's people taking the message of the kingdom to all peoples, even to the ends of the earth, going out instead of people coming in toward Jerusalem. Now, remind me, is this quoted this way in Mm -hmm. Matthew or Mark, or is this unique to Luke? I think they actually do use the full quotation. Okay. My, my house shall be a prayer, house of prayer for okay. all people. So this is something yeah. kind of a little bit unique of Luke, which makes mm-hmm. sense with Luke, right? right, right yeah. Okay. Right, right. So moving on, um, what happens next? Well, here? the next stage then of Luke's narrative is one of conflict and dispute between the various Jewish religious and social leaders and Jesus. And, and you know, the, the Jewish and religious and social leaders would have had a vested interest in the religious and social order as established by the temple. Um, and so, uh, you know, it's... No surprise that Jesus uh, gets into conflict and dispute with them. Mm-hmm. And it's no accident that Luke indicates that these disputes arise as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and telling them the good news in verse 1 of chapter 20. Mm-hmm. That's an important piece of context I think we need to keep in okay. mind. Jesus is engaged in his role of teaching right. in the temple. And, and he's proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God that, that we have seen as right. the message of Jesus throughout Luke's gospel. Right. Um, and so really the whole series of debates that we run into revolves around the question they ask him at the outset. By what authority are you doing these mm-hmm. things? Who is it who gave you this authority? And that includes by what authority are you teaching in the temple and by what authority right. are you proclaiming yep. this message of the kingdom of right. God that, that right. seems to be unique to you? Yeah, you know... <laughs> I, 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 you wonder though, he is doing it. He's doing it with authority, obviously. Mm-hmm. No one's quite yet taken enough courage to go up and pull him out of there and throw him out. Well, they can't know? because they fear the people. And that's something that, that is also sort of a, a refrain in this part of Luke's gospel is that um, their, their fear of the people prevents them from intervening in, in, in uh-huh. that way. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. 
Head on. So uh, in the, then afterwards, Jesus tells the parable of the wicked tenants and frames really what, what is a not-so-subtle attack on the Jewish leaders for failing to give God their hearts and lives mm-hmm. and thus to act faithfully according, according to God's purposes. And even they recognize this. Luke tells us that the scribes and the chief priests realized that he had told this parable against them. Yeah, yeah. It, it reminds us that they're not stupid. No, I mean, <laughs> no. They catch right? on. They you catch know, on. And, and yeah. I think sometimes... I think sometimes we tend to look at them as the guys who don't get it and mm-hmm. are clueless, but these are not, these are no. shrewd people. Yep, they, are. they just are against Jesus. Yes, yeah. right. The, now, the Jewish leaders proceed to ask him questions that are designed to undermine mm-hmm. his authority, especially in the eyes of the people, because, as I mentioned, Luke tells us that they feared the people. The first question was about whether it was lawful to pay taxes to Rome, and it was more than just a clever way to put Jesus between the rock of the Roman Empire and the hard place of the Jewish Mm -hmm. people's support. Uh, Since the Sanhedrin collected this particular tax, it was a poll tax that everybody had to pay. It was a question of Jesus' allegiance to the Jewish religious establishment and, by extension, to the temple Mm -hmm. itself. So there's Mm -hmm. more going on in that one as well. Okay. And that brings us to our lesson for today. Um, it's found in all three synoptic gospels in essentially the same form. There are some details in Luke's gospel that are unique to Luke. But um, Luke introduces the episode by telling us that some Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came to him and asked him a question. Mm-hmm. I, You know, it's easy to kind of walk by this, but just to remind everyone, this is the time we're talking about Sadducees instead of Pharisees. And I think sometimes we tend to just kind of, oh, it's one or the other. And I think it's important that the, the, it's the Sadducees here because right. there's some specific uh, beliefs and practices they have right. that make this particular group important. Right. And they were different. The Sadducees were the basically the chief priests, the ruling priests. They were the most powerful priests. They would have been also the most wealthy aristocrats among the priestly caste. And um, this is very different from the Pharisees. Mm-hmm. The Pharisees may have been wealthy. They may not have been. But the Pharisees were more of a popular movement, mm-hmm. uh, and so you see them, you know, scattered throughout. Their, their their power base was the synagogue, whereas the Sadducees' power base was the temple. I wanted uh, before we started, I asked Alan a question of whether these were Levites, and uh, I I thought maybe he should share that with you because I think those of us that don't know the deeper history here might assume that with the Sadducees. Yeah, so no, they, 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 they these that. would have been these would have been sort of an aristocratic cl- aristocratic class that really originated in the days of the Maccabean revolt and then the Hasmonean kingdom that followed, where um, basically the the chief the role of the chief priest was up for bid. You know, and so the the person who bid the highest for the role of the chief priest got it. And the chief priests were among those who not only adopted Greek ways of living themselves, they also sent their sons off to be educated in a mm-hmm. Greek manner. And so they were thoroughly Hellenized. Mm-hmm. And 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 so what it's really it's really kind of a power party in in, mm-hmm. in the Jewish world. And and uh, we see this with the Sadducees in Luke's gospel. And by the way, this is the first time that, that Luke mentions the Sadducees. And it, it, exactly. And I think it's really interesting because as you explain this here, you, we can just see the levels of corruption that are mm-hmm. taking on. I mean, um, often when we think of people, the holy men in the temple, that uh, these people, <laughs> I, I think we miss, or if, if we're reading even the notes, Oh, as Alan puts this in here, this is a position that went up for bid, and all of a sudden it becomes much more corrupt. These than people we are think. politicians. Yes, these yes. people are politicians. In- yeah. So interesting. Thank you. And so, and in, in Jesus' day, basically the le- the the leading chief priest would have consisted of the fam- one family, the family of Annas, who was high priest for about 10 years, from 6 to 15 CE, and who conti- but he continued to control the temple hierarchy through his son-in-law Caiaphas, who we're more familiar mm-hmm. with, and his sons, who followed Caiaphas as chief mm-hmm. priest, until about the 40s. Right. So this guy you know, controlled basically the temple structure for like 35 wow. years. Wow. Yeah. Well, you know, as you're talking about this, I, I am curious... It seems like we continue to hear about the Pharisees, but the Sadducees, we kind of drop off. I mean, it it seems that's why I think we we don't pay attention that much to that they're being identified here specifically. Well, and and that's due in part uh, 
uh, due to the fact that their power base was in the temple, which ceased to function after the destruction of Jerusalem in 70. Uh, whereas the, the, the sort of the legacy of the, of the Pharisees was continued with the rabbis. Right, who, and diaspora, right? Right. So continue. And, and who were the only ones left to fill the power vacuum. And so, mm-hmm. you know, it, it's, no, it's no mistake. I mean, it's no accident of history that we know so much more about the rabbinic tradition because they were functioning mm-hmm. as the leaders of the Jewish religion, whereas the Sadducees lost right, their power. Lost. And so we don't really know much about them. You know, interesting, my mind, my his, historian's mind's going crazy here, but you, I wonder, were they targeted specific, even more specifically no, no, at all? No, it was they just, just the, the temple was destroyed because right. it was, you know, it, that was that was a common practice. You know, you destroy a person, right. a, 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 a nation's religion, and you subjugate them, you know. Right, I just wondered yeah. if the Sadducees... Um, fled into the diaspora as well or did they um did, did they somehow we, manage to hide into the greco-roman really population much about we don't them. know i we wondered if josephus had them. any yeah no yeah. we don't really hear no. much interesting about them. Yeah. all right yeah so um the sadducees were also reputed to only follow the Torah of Moses. Not only, not only did they, and, and that explains why they rejected a concept of res- resurrection that was commonly held. They rejected the books of the prophets and the writings, as well as the oral traditions passed on mm. by the rabbis. And remember, the rabbis believed that the oral traditions came from, Mo- originated with Moses. Mm-hmm. So, but but the Sadducees rejected all this. So it's against this background that not only their question, but also their rejection of resurrection really does make sense. So Luke tells us that they asked Jesus, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, leaving a wife but no children, the man shall marry the widow and raise up children for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first married a woman and died childless. Then the second and the third married her. And in so on the same way, all seven died childless. Finally, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be for the seven? had married her and they think they've got him you know trapped because you know obviously it wouldn't make any sense for this woman to be to have seven husbands right you know in jewish in jewish society there was um there was polygamy, but this would be polyandry. Yes, right. Exactly. <laughs> and there was no room for a woman having multiple husbands at the same time. Right. <laughs> so um, uh, it would just have been nonsensical, and they thought they had him trapped. Right. Yeah. Now, this particular question then was based on a directive in the Torah that the brother of a man who dies childless is to marry his dead brother's wife, to bear a child who will carry the dead man's name. And as Deuteronomy 25 says, so that his name may not be blotted out from Israel. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, the wording of the Sadducees' question also reflects Judah's instruction to his son Onan concerning the wife of his dead brother Ur in Genesis 38.8, where he is to raise up children for his mm-hmm, brother. Mm-hmm. And so this would seem to be then the Sadducees' understanding of what the Torah teaches about resurrection, that one's legacy persists through one's de- descendants. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. in fact, the, the citation from Genesis 38.8 indicates, indicating that the purpose of leveret marriage was to raise up children from his brother, uses a form of the verb for resurrection, anistemi. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, there's, there's, I think there's a good oh, case to be made yeah. that, yep. that this was the way the Pharisees under, um, the, this is the way the Sadducees mm-hmm. understood uh, any kind of thought of resurrection was that, you know, one's legacy, you know, was by, ensured by raising up children. <laughs> and, and that was the only resurrection that counted uh, mm-hmm. because that was the only resurrection that was mentioned by the Torah. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, um, you know, this is, this makes a lot of sense then that, that, that the Pharisees are, that the Sadducees are raising this question. Yeah. Yeah. We need not take, however, the fact that the Sadducees addressed Jesus' teacher's evidence that their question was a genuine one. (laughs) No. (laughs) I I think really even just the simple absurdity of the question betrays the real motive that they're challenging Jesus' faithful adherence to Torah as well as as his, as his adherence to Moses. And they're also challenging his authority as a teacher, one who, who dares to come into the temple and teach perhaps scripture or the kingdom of God as if he had authority. Mm-hmm. Now, while the Sadducees insist on quoting Moses, I think a point that Joel Green points out here is that 
Jesus insists that the Torah is not self-interpreting, but must be read from the right perspective. Mm-hmm. And you know, this is a this is a problem with fundamentalist movements right. uh, throughout history. Oh, yeah, is, absolutely. Is they think they can just cite a quotation and it's self-interpreting. Right. And 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 you know, it's interesting that in 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 Mark and Matthew, really in Mark, J- Jesus says to them, you know. This is this shows that you don't know the scriptures nor the power of God, you know, right. and, and you are quite wrong in Mark. You know, he, he really attacks them in turn on 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 this on this right. uh, score in, in Mark's gospel, but in Luke's gospel, it's really more implied. Uh-huh. So uh-huh. Jesus proceeds then to sketch out that right perspective in accordance with his message about the uh-huh. kingdom of God. Those who belong to this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy of a place in that age and in the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. Indeed, they cannot die anymore because they're like angels and are children of God, being children of the resurrection. Mm-hmm. Now, much has been made right. of this text, and I would say too much has been made of it, especially regarding the nature of the resurrected life. Right, right. And of particular significance in this respect is Jesus' comparison of the children of the resurrection with angels. Yes, yes. Uh, however, the, I think we need to focus on the point of Jesus' statement in this context, and it's a straightforward one. Because marriage and childbearing belong to this age and not to the mm-hmm. age of the kingdom of God and the age of the resurrection, the premise of the Sadducees' question is flawed. Right. And so yeah, this is yeah. how Jesus responds to their right. question. I mean, it's just it's, by saying the premise is flawed. It's a, it's a, it's a question, a, a misunderstanding of the reality of being human here and what God's reality is um, in, in the resurrected life, in the kingdom of God. And, and, I think we could say part of the problem is that they have no concept of a reality well, beyond here. They have yeah. no concept of a kingdom of God that is that is in another age beside right. this one. Well, because all of that, all of that information that you find in the Hebrew Bible is in the prophets. Right, exactly, of which they don't really recognize, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. so it, it makes sense. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So Jesus not only exposes the question, the Sadducees' question is faulty, but he proceeds to quote Moses, and I think we could say presumably from the right perspective, to support his belief in resurrection. And he says in verse 37, and the fact that the dead are raised, Moses himself showed in the story about the bush where he mm-hmm. speaks of the Lord as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. So I think it's important to note here that Jesus doesn't pick out some obscure matter from the Torah, right. like leveret marriage, which, by the way, historians think was probably no longer practiced in the Jewish no, society not. at this time, no. right? So he doesn't pick this obscure uh, legal right, matter, right. but rather he goes to Moses' call story at the burning bush where God reveals his very name, which would have been you know, a passage that everyone would have mm-hmm, been familiar mm-hmm. with. And there God identified himself as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And the implication here is that God is recalling the covenant promises made to the patriarchs of Israel who were long dead at the time of Moses calling to bring the people out mm-hmm. of Egypt. And so what are the implications, the fact that he identifies himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob centuries after they were dead? And, and so he, he, the, the, the conclusion that Jesus brings out is that he is God not of the dead, but of the living, for to him all of them are alive. Right, yeah, and that's the piece in there that's important. <clears throat> yes, indeed. All of them. All of them are alive, yeah. Mm -hmm. And so Jesus begins with the affirmation, you know, that that God is the living God in the Hebrew Bible is is fundamental. Right. And and I think Jesus draws out, it it brings this corollary that he is God of the living. Mm -hmm. And also the fact that God would, would... identify himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who were long dead at the time of his interaction with Moses, also indicates, you know, he is God of of these patriarchs who are somehow still living. Right, right, right. Now, as Jesus says then, this means to him, that to God, that is, even those who were long dead are alive. And it's a statement only found in Luke's account of this dialogue. And again, much debate has gone into what exactly Jesus meant by this. 
I personally don't think we can adequately unpack mm-hmm. the questions that surround exactly how those long dead were alive to God in the context of Luke's gospel. Right. And specifically, I would say we should not read the concept of the immortality of the soul, which arose in the church under the influence of Neoplatonist thinkers in the third century and later, back into the New Testament. Mm-hmm. The New Testament hope is focused on the resurrection, on a resurrection in a new creation, on the analogy right. of Jesus' post-resurrection existence. And the New Testament writers simply affirm that those who die in some sense live after death, but they never explain right, how. Right. I think that's just our human desire to mm-hmm. try to make sense of it. We want, right. you know, in that day it was whatever was logical, whatever fit in within a context of their desire to um, integrate this with Greco-Roman, you know, classical thought, or today, just on our reason, we just uh, we right. want to prove it. Somehow. How can this be? How can this? We be? want to explain it. Yes, yes. Uh, I'm I I prefer to just leave it as an affirmation and the, leave the explanation. Uh, just uh, you know, this is in God's hands. <laughs> and, right. And the the best explanation I can I can come up with is that. Jesus is simply affirming on the basis of God's character as the living God. Mm-hmm. And, and that's essential to the very name right. of God in this passage in Exodus chapter 3 that he's referring to. That, that God is the living God is essential to the very name of God there. Mm-hmm. And so this is God's character. God is the living God. And Jesus draws out the corollary. God is therefore also the God of the living. And it's all based on God's character that even those long dead are still alive to God. Mm -hmm. And basically then this argument from God's character as revealed in the call narrative of Moses becomes a way to establish the foundation for a belief in the resurrection on the basis of the Torah, which was the Mm -hmm. only authoritative scripture recognized by the Sadducees. Just as a side note here, I'd like to mention that um, Francois Bovon in his Luke commentary points out that this particular statement, um, he is not God of the dead, but of the living for him, all of them are alive, was very influential to Karl Barth. Uh, mm. Apparently, his first pass, his first sermon in 1916 was preached on Luke 20:38. 20, oh, interesting! And hmm. apparently, his his the last thing he wrote before he died in 1968 was quoting this verse. Hmm. Interesting. <laughs> and 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 so um, it's it's something that that is very significant. Now, Bart Bart also argues. The way that those long dead are still alive to God is simply based in God's character. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. But Bart also took this passage as um, really having more ecclesiological significance in that he believed that um, the church embraces the visible church and the invisible church, mm-hmm. the church militant and the church triumphant, and in short, the church of the living and the dead. Right, and so right. That, that we we live and exist as the church in connection with um, right. the, the, the saints who have gone before. And so this yeah. was something very important to Carl Barth. Yeah, wow, that's, um, that's, thank you. Yeah, and it makes sense if you know anything about Barth, and yeah. yet yeah. it requires that little bit next layer of, to uncover that because yeah. I, I'm not sure his, you know, both at the beginning of his career and at the end of his mm-hmm. life, that this is mm-hmm. the where he comes back to. Yeah, I think that's fascinating. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, in the overall context of Luke's gospel, this controversy serves as the others do to establish Jesus' authority as teacher, not only the good news of the kingdom, but also as an authoritative interpreter of Scripture. We've seen that before. Mm-hmm. And the outcome of the whole series of episodes is that they no longer dared to ask him another question. That is, he silenced mm-hmm. his opponents. But he did not convince them to embrace the call to faithful devotion and living called for by the kingdom of God. You know, he has constantly challenged them throughout Luke's gospel. We've seen this in the travel narrative. He has constantly challenged even the Jewish religious leaders to orient their lives around mm-hmm, the kingdom mm-hmm. of God, which is both coming and already here. We saw it, you know, I- implicitly in right. the parable of the um, dishonest manager. Right. Where right. there's this qu- this issue of the age to come versus this age, the children mm-hmm. of this age versus the the children of light, you know, mm-hmm. and, and Jesus is pressing them, you know, constantly to orient their lives around the kingdom of God, right. which is both here and coming. Right. But they have 
consistently refused. Mm. And so I would say these debates, and especially this particular debate, represents the climactic point in Jesus' conflict with the Jewish religious leaders. Mm -hmm. He answers their questions not only from Scripture, but also on the basis of the good news of the kingdom. Uh, And in the process, the leaders are silenced. But from now on, all we hear about them is that they're looking for a way to put him to death. Right. Right. So, wow. so the conflict has come to come to a head, and and it it moves now toward wow. toward Jesus' death. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you. Hi, friends. We're back, and we're going to take a look at how the Reformers, and actually not only the Reformers, but how uh, through history this passage has affected um, uh, culture. And so, um, Christy, um, uh, share with us what you found. Sure. So I looked mostly at the Reformation commentaries today, and and, uh, they really, um, the selections dealt with uh, Calvin and Martin Bootser and Melanchthon. So... To give you just a bit of an idea, um, there, was, there were a few themes that I thought they focused on. Um, and at first, they looked at the intent of the law. And this was important for both Calvin and Bootser, no, not surprisingly. And they were looking at um, that the law was for those living here on the earth. That it was, as according to Bootser, a means to achieve public tranquility. And so these reformers are making this distinction between the world inhabited by human beings and the necessity of living in this human space that is corrupted by sin in contrast to the world of the resurrection. Mm. So law is for us here on earth. It's, that's why it's de- developed. And in the resurrection, law is transcended, I guess. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So Bootser and Calvin make direct reference to the Sadducees here as the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection, whereas the Pharisees did. And um, according to Calvin, this was in part because they disregarded the prophets, mm-hmm. finding their message second as second-rate scripture as opposed to the law. And we just talked about that. Um, this is where both Calvin and Bootser explained that the law is of those on earth now, but that those living in the resurrection would not be bound by these human laws. Mm. So we've as Calvin notes, those adopted into Christ will be, quote, free from the infirmities of the present life and, quote, not subject to the necessities of a fallen life. Well, and yeah, I can, I can, I see that. Um, I, so I find it a little surprising to hear them say that the law is superseded in the kingdom because, you know, one of the things I love about the Reformed tradition and about Calvin is, is the way they point out, as I think the New Testament writers all do, that the law and the commandments remain fully um, 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 significant, you know, fully, um, um, they're meaningful to us as Christians, and they're they're something that are, that we should, we should, we should be following. I don't think he thinks he does. I don't, I don't think they're saying we shouldn't follow them here. I think they're just saying is that in the afterlife, in the kingdom of God, these are no longer, these no longer define who we are now i think what's important is the concept of the afterlife of course for calvin includes Mm. those who are of the elect Mm -hmm. um now remember we've talked before he talks a lot about the hope for universal salvation but he doesn't believe in universal salvation and that's the difference he would love to see that but no that's not how it works and so if indeed you are saved and you are indeed no longer on earth trapped by earthly sins then therefore you don't need the law, but mm-hmm. you do need the law while you are here on mm-hmm. earth. So that's I, that emphasis on the Ten Commandments we see. Sure, and I can, I, and I see that. I see that 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 you don't need the law. I mean, you know, it's one of the the various functions of the law. You know mm-hmm. that you don't need that that function of the law to keep you from sin because sin is no longer there. Right. I, I guess from my perspective, I look at the commandments, especially the Ten Commandments, and think of it as. This is a way of ordering life right. that is consistent with God's will. Right. And 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 life in the kingdom of God right. is going to be consistent with God's will by nature, I guess. Right. So maybe by that's nature, why we don't right. need the that's law. That's why you don't yeah. need them. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Okay, exactly. I get it now. Okay, okay. okay. thanks. thanks. <laughs> <laughs> so um and then the next part is that the reflection of the law 
Um, and then its limitations hinge on the promise of an afterlife. So that's the next step that's important here. And honestly, I think with people, those of us listening, brought up in the church, it's kind of common knowledge. It's the DNA of being Christian, if you will. But this was not part of the DNA of the Jewish tradition, the Sadducees in particular. And Christ here makes it the centerpiece of Christian theology. The promise of an afterlife and that this life will be different than the one experienced here. Mm -hmm. We just kind of alluded to that. Um, This is a life free from the correction of human sin. It is one where sickness and death are no longer, but instead there will be a world of happiness. That's Melanchthon directly. Mm -hmm. The, The confutation then gave space for Christ and Luke, who reported it to explain the promise of the resurrection and the limitations of the law. Mm. In a way, it is yet another way to show how the kingdom of God differs from the human world and emphasizes the inability to think beyond the human senses. Mm. In other words, we don't really understand what that is. And I think that's where maybe Calvin would agree with you again, Alan, is that we can't really understand really what that kingdom is. Right, Um, right. How, how do we, we can't really explain how it is that those who are dead are still alive to God. Right, right, right. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I didn't talk so much about the Lutheran tradition, although Melanchthon does, of course, put it there. You know, Luther really emphasized that idea of two kingdoms, that the, mm-hmm. the kingdom of, of humans and the kingdom of God, and, and that they function differently. And it, it does make sense within the context of how these, how these guys are trying to explain it. Mm-hmm. So... The next thing for Calvin, I think, which was cool, is um, the doctrine of adoption, which, you know, is something we talk about in terms of, of Reformed theology, and yet I, you know, we really haven't pulled it up here, but this is a, this is, he used this scripture to support this idea, and it hinged on a relationship of being part of the elect, and yet still experiencing the limitations of humanity. So, in other words, Theoretically, right, you might think, well, if I'm elect, then I'm not bound by the, the commandments at all because I already know I'm saved and therefore uh, am I not automatically already acting as a child of God. But for, and, and so Calvin spends some time in the commentaries explaining how this works. So, <laughs> Well, and for those who may be wondering, where is Calvin bringing this in in this passage? It's in verse 35. Those who are considered worthy of a place in that age. That's, that's language that, has, has mm-hmm. a lo- that a lot of people have read in terms of adoption or election, mm-hmm. you know, and, and so that, that's where, that's where right, it appears right. in the passage. Yeah, yeah. So for Calvin, those of the elect, those chosen, were assured of their salvation. They had been adopted by God and could be confident in their final destination, but he said in the human world that they were not there Yet, they would still experience the reality of being human, including the sin that led to experiences of pain and death and destruction. The adoption by God of those chosen was a seal, or as Calvin describes, earnest money of their hope. And it is only on the last day that those chosen are truly and fully adopted into God's kingdom. And likewise, they are not truly counted as his children because the race is not yet hmm. finished. Interesting. Yeah. So it reminds me, though, it places the context of this need to continue to be to practice the spiritual mm. disciplines, that practice pra- process of sanctification right. that comes even though that you are of the elect, and um, it definitely the the call and the need to um, to walk with God in the space. You're not going to you can't escape. You can't escape the reality of being human. We don't. We don't. We don't ever. We don't get to the point where life is no longer a stewardship in which we need to be faithful until we come face to face with Christ. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, now there are deeper theological issues with these passages, in particular the promise of resurrection, and despite that this is a centerpiece of the Christian religion, there are groups in the Reformation who question the doctrine, particularly I, radical groups. I find groups. that just, <laughs> I just, I'm astonished at that. that is, yeah. I don't understand that. <laughs> Isn't that strange? Cal- <laughs> it is. It is. Isn't it weird? But think about today's heresies. These mm-hmm. people that, and, and how many different variations that we have today of people that claim they're Christian in them. And you really dig into mm-hmm. the theology, there's nothing Christian there at all, right, right. you know? Um, and, and that was the same in the Reformation. Not even a Christian view of, of Jesus. No, not, not even. I mean, you know, 
picking on the Mormons, for example, right? right? Um, Calvin, however, in the Institute's notes that the promise of resurrection in humanity, even in Gentile groups who buried the dead, um, had showed hope of the promise of resurrection. So he would say, look, these folks that are, you know, uh, they were heathens and non-Christians, what the, uh, it was unprofitable, as he said, to do this, it still suggests something fundamental about our creation, mm-hmm. that there's this kind of hope for the afterworld. Yeah, why bury someone if you didn't expect the body to be resurrected? Exactly. Yeah. He said this, quote, it is a weighty refutation of unbelief that altogether professed what no one believed. <laughs> it's kind of fancy, but yeah, yeah it was... Uh, it, it didn't make sense. Mm-hmm. Why would you Why would you bury dead if you didn't mm-hmm. have some hope um, of of some kind of resurrection? So, um, but there's these groups that nice and and the main group that that really denied this kind of assurance of salvation really are the are the Chileists, and they believed um, that Christ in that one hundred one thousand year reign. And so these are our millenarians, our um, are rapture folks in the modern world, right? These are um, the dispensationalists that we've talked about before. Um, and so <laughs> this, uh, this is a heresy of the church that emerges with the early church and the early, some of the early church fathers even had some mm. of this idea in mind and continues to the present. Um, and these groups see that there's going to be this millennial kingdom that's going to happen before the final judgment. But, it, the problem is it takes away that assurance of salvation, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and, you know, these days um, there are all kinds of, of, of these movements. There are all kinds of these views, and, and there are some who, who don't necessarily deny a resurrection. They have a, they have a first and a second resurrection. Yes. The yes. first resurrection is to judgment, and the second resurrection is to life. But right. again, you're right. I mean, I think the whole emphasis is that um, it, it really undermines, you know, any kind of confidence in the promise of salvation because it's like nobody's going to know until the end. Right, Ex- <laughs> exactly. And, and that, that sense of hope, and I mean, there's, it's the sense of dying of, of, of not having that being assured. It, 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 it was very interesting, um, uh, very interesting that this this continues, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, as I said, it, it was actually one of the first people to refute it was Augustine of Hippo. Mm-hmm. Um, that um, and it, it, it's really a it's a problem of literalism and literalism of revelation, right? Um, but again, people read it, they pull it out, they try to use it, which is of course partly what Jesus is refuting in this passage, right? right? You don't just quote the words as if they're self-interpreting. You have to read them with the right perspective. But as I was researching this, I stumbled across a historical what? (laughs) 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 Um, And so I'd mentioned um, how this kind of thinking... um, has permeated history, and one of the main places is in is in is in Nazi Germany in the Third Reich, mm-hmm. um, and so which could be translated Third Kingdom. Exactly, exactly, <laughs> and so an attempt to legitimize and provide a vision for the Third Reich, Hitler adopted this idea of a millennial age, mm-hmm. one thousand year reign of the Third Reich, it, and again, it's that Third Kingdom, that dispensationalist mentality that's come mm-hmm. right in here. Mm-hmm. It was the reign of the Spirit, the plan for God for Germans to restore dignity and be world leaders. Yeah. Now, this, when you think about this in Christian context, provides even more support for an attack on the Jews. Mm-hmm. So it fits into that whole, if you will, Nazi theology. That's what I'm going to call it. Is Nazi theology. Well, and and, and it was the, you know we, we we think of the Nazis as bad guys, and so we 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 think nothing that 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 they believed could be, could be believed by anybody else. But this was their version of of um, Germany as as a Christian nation, mm-hmm. you know, being yes. used by God for to 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 be special for a special purpose to bless the world, exactly. which is obviously some of the rhetoric that's used for America as exactly. a Christian nation today. Exactly. There's a historian named Alan Bullock who did a really, really wonderful comparison of Hitler and Stalin and and, and the regimes of um, communist communist Soviet Union under Stalin and the Nazi regime under Hitler. So many similarities. But I think what was really, really interesting is you get a regime where where the church is replaced, if you will, mm-hmm. by the by the 
by the strong man, by by Stalin, the cult if you will, of the, empire. the cult of the empire, <laughs> yeah. where is in in Nazi Germany the church is taken over. So right. while they are going to cut it out, we're going to try to get rid of the churches. Hitler's going to try to use the churches right. to support his identity. So slightly different. And I, but I, I think it's, um, I mean, it's, it's a, it's an interesting, um, process. And so as I was researching this and I've, I've done quite a bit of work with Nazi Germany over the years, but I was kind of surprised because, um, I found an article written in 1934, which is, of course, right as the Nazi regime is starting its slow, its rise. Mm -hmm. And, you know, she was trying to explain this terminology. Well, the idea that there is a First and Second Reich and what those were actually as a historical thing came later than this concept, which is really tied to if you will, the religious tradition, this idea of this dispensational third age mm. that comes of the Christian tradition mm. instead of the historical tradition, which comes later, which identifies the first Reich as the Holy Roman Empire with the crowning of Charlemagne and the second Reich, which includes this, um, the rise of, of Germany and its, its unification um, under Wilhelm I and um, Otto von Bismarck. So what an interesting... What an interesting historical application actually followed um, as an explanation, which was really first, which was this idea that the Third Reich is, is this dispensationalist period. Mm. And she was dealing mm. with that in this article of 1934, that this ties much more further back to the Christian tradition and some of the works of some of the earlier theologians who were starting, who were trying to understand, you know, yeah this kind of dispensationalist Well, it's concept. like Hitler just kind of took over. Uh, there's mm -hmm. always been, there's always been in, in the history of the church, this, 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 uh, I think impetus to try to, um, for, for Christians to try to, um, co-opt the, 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 um, the social structure and the government structure, you know, the political power for, for religious ends. And, Absolutely. you know, it's, it's like Hitler kind of does the opposite. He, he co-ops, you know, the, right. the church with, with their, with their notions, the, the right. line with this right. for his own ends. Absolutely. Absolutely. So very interesting. And of course, this idea that, um, Anyway, then as this starts to move forward, because 1934 she writes her article, and then as we kind of move forward with that, and we begin to say, oh, but we need a more tangible sense for this for the historians, and they add this first Second Reich concept. Then it becomes all of German nation from its inception early on as mm. Hitler pours back into the history of the great medieval German. Remember, Germany was never conquered by the Roman Empire, mm, so right. they start to have this kind of wonderful German romanticism that mm -hmm. follows this idea that they were never conquered by the Romans and therefore they're somehow um, more pure and mm -hmm. legitimate, right? And and so then that this all ties in into this greatness and then um, that indeed under God, and I was I was put in here, my, my grandfather was f fought for the United States in World War One and picked up a belt buckle on the, on the battlefield and it says Gott mit uns. It's a German belt buckle. So this idea that God is behind this German army, and of course that's picked up by Hitler too. Yep. And continued that. They into had World the War same II. thing in the Second World yeah. War. Yeah. Yeah. So just a, kind of an interesting piece there. So back to Calvin, and while Calvin um, was not responding to movements, obviously he predated um, World War II by, <laughs> by by several hundred years. Um, he did see a problem with the type of thinking, not not just because it's it's not theologically sound, but I think it goes beyond that that it actually has has problems with with really what God's purpose is for humanity. Mm -hmm. and, and I think he was fully aware. And in his own time, there were these types of movements. Right. And they always ended up in, in fighting. And, and I'm thinking of Thomas Munster and Alstadt, the uh, Zwickau prophets. Um, these were early mil millennial movements. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. But, you know, it continues on through history. And I, I picked out, if you're familiar with the history of China, the Taiping Rebellion in the 19th century, and even more recently, David Koresh in the United oh, States. He's, he's a perfect example. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So um, what an interesting space. So it um, this, <laughs> this idea about this uh, uh, millenarianism 
it put in a doubt the assurance of salvation, as I said before, and really allows evil to reenter the space, mm. and um, it discredits the kingdom of God. So, yeah. um, while we as as mainline Christians agree with this, it 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 means that um, it also means that God's justice um, in eternity. Um, draws a line and in Calvin's view between those who are saved and those who are damned. Now I did not like this part of Calvin. Um, but in other places he does argue for the hope of eternal salvation, but here he actually does argue for that pre double predestination. Mm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Which, which is problematic when you, when you look at the way Jesus message of the kingdom really functions. I, agree. I mean, you know, there is a, there is a, there is a, div, I mean, division is a theme in Luke's gospel, right? Right. Right. And, and from the start, you know, right. um, um, Simeon's, um, predicts that, right. that Jesus will bring about division. And we see this constantly throughout Luke's right. gospel. And, you know, I've t said before, when you're looking at Calvin's big theology, you run into problems with it. It's not perfect and mm -hmm. i think anyone that reads calvin knows that he did this wonderful gift to us by trying to do this but he's he, he never quite gets it done because he can't quite ever justify unified double predestination within the context of a loving god mm -hmm. and and so he, he, I, he i would agree with that he, yeah. he brushes it with the hope of salvation but then as he's dealing with something like today um where he's seeing evil he doesn't have an explanation for it right. and so it becomes tied into well therefore um it must be must this, be this. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah yeah thanks christy yep Hi, friends. We're back, and we wanted to just kind of piggyback on where we were at the end of the last segment. Um, you know, um, with with Calvin trying to make sense out of evil in the world, which to some extent we may not be able to answer entirely, and yet the the, the impulse to try to come up with a systemat systematic theology tries mm -hmm. to explain everything, and that's kind of what we saw in my segment as well. Is that it's you know we don't really have an explanation for how. Um, all those who have died are alive to God. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, Christy, share with us your thoughts about yeah. that. Yeah, well, we were just talking about it, and, you know, I think we have to admire Calvin I, for trying to do this. I mean, he's really the first one to try to put this systematic theology, and it makes sense because he's trying to make sense of how Scripture in its entirety and the history from the beginning of time to the present makes sense with what God's vision is for humanity. And so... We have to applaud that. And, and people that try to do this understand the difficulties because you think you have something all worked out and then there's something that doesn't quite work. If you take one piece as your starting point, and for Calvin's sovereignty of God mm -hmm. is, is probably the fundamental number one thing he holds on to, well, then what does that mean from there? And actually, with the his you know theory of um, adoption i think he does a pretty good job of explaining how if you're adopted you still are living in this world and you're still going to be impacted by mm -hmm. um, good and evil in there but yet it does beg to, uh, beg you to question well okay if i'm adopted if i already know i'm saved uh, why am i why am I afflicted by human things? And why is somebody else afflicted in the same way? Maybe someone else is still really living a better, better worldly life than I am, at least mm -hmm. by human standards. And they might be damned. So it, it begs one to question what all this, how all this works, you know? And I think in the end for, I think for Calvin, you know, his view would be, look, there's, there's people out there that, that do evil, and they never, in their human lives, never do anything right. And 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 maybe that's an explanation. Maybe we can see that as an explanation that they aren't saved since they don't seem to see any need to follow. And yet, at the same time, he would say God could save whoever God wants. So it's a it's a weird. It's 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 one of the problems. It's one of his. His catches. Well, and it sounds like, you know, the only way that Calvin could make sense out of evil in the world was with the notion that God in his sovereignty had 
um, condemned them. You know, basically, had, had they they were not elected to salvation. They were not chosen for salvation. Right. They were they were reprobate. And, right. And 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 because. If God is truly sovereign, how can these people be out there doing evil of their own accord? Right. Well, and that's where I think we see, as I said, I think you see these problems in Calvin. And I think what we see there then is still a little bit of the dualism that you get from the medieval age coming up. I mean, you read it sometimes in Calvin, mm-hmm. the impact of the devil or the um, um, that someone is, is trapped by evil. And while it's not central to him, I think we still see it in there um, in, in terms, and, and, and it fights, right? It's obviously fighting against um, the sovereignty of God. Um, yeah. So I, I often think that it's it has more to do with the absence of God uh, myself later on, and, and, and therefore, um, but I do think that idea that there's this evil evil presence, especially if, if, if God has um, abandoned you, if you will. Sure, sure. Uh, you know, I, I will say, you know, as, as I've said before, uh, you know, through our through our discussions, I've come to to really appreciate Calvin. I knew that I knew I've known for years that you, you can't paint Calvin into the box created by the institutes because the commentaries are, have a show a very different um, uh, you, a, a Calvin who's really wrestling with the biblical text and trying to make theological sense right. out of it. Right. I think and, there's a big I think there's a big difference. Yeah. Um, and, and and you know that's one of the things I I really I I really resonate with that part of that that aspect of Calvin's work. Right. And that's one of the reasons why I'm also drawn to Bart is because you know I guess one of the very things that make makes Bart so hard to work with is he has all these small print sections in the church dogmatics where he engages in this just long sort of excursus about some biblical theme and tries to tries to really wrestle with the biblical uh, basis for mm-hmm. the theological themes he's discussing and, and you know in the in 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 um, volume three, Part two, which is the doctrine of creation, but he's basically dealing with the human experience of time and and here specifically the end of time. What is the human experience of the afterlife? And he, he quotes this passage, Luke twenty thirty eight, but he, he makes it clear that, you know, in the Old Testament there is no answer given to this whole question of how mm-hmm. can they still be living. And and yet it just basically he says that basically it comes down to all man's deliverance, redemption, preservation, and salvation in and out of death is enclosed in God mm-hmm. in his existence and faithfulness. Right. And, and in other words, you know, it, is, it comes down to the character of God. Right, right. And, and which, you know, uh, I mean, the, I think that's what Jesus was saying. You know, it is, is you don't, uh, yeah, I'm, you know, in, in Mark's gospel, he says, you neither understand the scriptures nor the power of God. And that's not in Luke's gospel, but uh, Luke's version of this story. But um, um, I think that's what it comes down to is that he goes back to one of the fundamental stories in the right. Hebrew Bible. Yes, yes, true. And and to the, where God reveals His very name and His very character mm-hmm. and, as as the Living One, and 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 Jesus basically says, you know, how can you think that that. Abraham and Isaac and Joseph are somehow. I mean, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are somehow dead to to a God who is the is the living one and the God of the living. It just it doesn't work. And so, just the very notion that God is the living God, right, right, leads toward this right. this impetus of that there is life. Life is the final word. You know, right, not death. right. I. I I agree with that a hundred percent, and 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 of course Calvin would agree with that too, right? Yeah. This is the God of the living, and what's what's interesting though, I think, in our sense experience of our world, our concept of living mm-hmm. is only here. I mean, mm-hmm. <laughs> we always talk about the one who with the fully actualized faith who gets it, who who like sense almost transcends into this mm-hmm. world where they understand of their salvation. But most of us, you know, and I just did a. I, I just did a funeral yesterday and uh, this family who I would have thought had this deep, deep faith was just really questioning their whole faith with the death of this, of this person. And um, I, it, it struck me as, but I only sense that this person is now gone mm-hmm. and I don't trust 
my own faith mm-hmm. that this person is still with it. And, and I think that was a really interesting um, reality about our, 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 our human limitations. And so what do we do as humans? We want to find a way to explain this living God beyond our physical lives here. And so we try to prove ways to do mm-hmm. it. We try to explain mm-hmm. ways to do it. And yep. so that's what we read in the scripture too. Yep. Yep. And how, and we've done it forever. How, how does this work? Yeah. People, people aren't, aren't comfortable with just simply leaving this idea of life coming from the living God as something that applies to our, our family members, our beloved family members who have gone on mm-hmm. in, in their death. Right. They are embraced in the life of God. Mm-hmm. And, 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 you know, we, 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 did, we can't just, we, we, we seem to have a hard time just letting that be without having a way to rationally explain it. Right. <laughs> and, right, and, right. and, you know, partly, you know, I think some have suggested that part of the problem with the Sadducees was that they lived within a closed system. Yeah. In terms of their thinking. Yeah, absolutely. You know, that that they, they left no room for, you know, this sort of um, a kingdom right. that comes from God into this world that changes the world already, right. but that one day that that will be the true reality you know yeah, they, they can't understand they, no. they, they, and and well, that that's just not a concept for them and yet that's i think that's what jesus is trying to point them toward right. is that this is god's this is what god is doing in the world right exactly uh, but the sadducees there you know I, I, are frankly not unlike a lot of the people today they they live in a reality of now they live in a, re- mm-hmm. a law system of now they're um they're comforted by rigid sets of laws mm-hmm. that that provide order when they're doing the right thing. Then that's mm-hmm. what they're supposed to. I mean, it's just a very. It's the it's, stability. Th- what of, we do is hard religion, right? Yeah. What 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 thinking about an afterlife that we can't grasp is is much harder mm-hmm. than following a bunch of rigid rules. I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. Right. I don't have to really think about it. I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. I'm a good girl. Someone pats me on the head. Mm-hmm. I, I move on. And I think that's I think that's part of the challenge. I mean, I think when I see people that some people that that leave the leave the faith, I think it's because they want something easier. I think they want an easier. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, yeah. They want say it has to make sense. And and yeah. there's a, there's a, there is a sense in which like like I said, you know. The New Testament affirms that those who are dead are somehow alive to God, mm-hmm. but it doesn't tell us how. Doesn't tell us how. And, exactly. and, and that's something we just have to leave right. unexplained. Right. And that's it pushes well, our faith. But think about this, you know, there's this big kind of practice or movement for people to have these, you know, these near death experiences and mm. they want to put them down in books and because I think we're so hungry to to have a mm-hmm. glimpse of that hope mm-hmm. and we're, they're just not comfortable to live in hope. Um, and yet I think it's those people with that kind of actualized faith that are just okay being in hope and okay with the unknown because the unknown is wrapped up in who Christ is. Sure. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's wrapped up in, in Christ's who he is, but it's ultimately wrapped up in the nature of God, God and the character right, of right, God. Of and, 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 you know, it's... Which is revealed to us in Christ, right? So, I mean, yeah. Yeah, and, 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 in, and in Scripture. And, you know, it's to me, it's... it's I, I think people, people, you know, there are passages in Scripture which seem to suggest that God is something other than the loving God and Father of our Lord and Savior Jesus the Christ, who brings this kingdom of life that that is for all, including the the last and the least and the left out, and and transforms things uh, into radically to align with with God's. Um, um, justice and peace and freedom, you know, that, that, that is, that it is granted to everyone. That's something that almost seems too good to be true mm-hmm. to us. And yet that is the message of the Bible. If you, if you read it from the right perspective, if right. you try to make the scripture to be sort of self-interpreting and just pull out passages, you're going <laughs> to, you're going to run into all kinds of problems. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, well, yeah. yeah, absolutely. It just doesn't work. Yeah. Well, I think that's a good discussion. Um, 
I hope that's helpful in having you think about this passage as a whole um, and what it offers and maybe what it doesn't and I guess maybe some of the, some of the dreams that then we pull out of it as well. Thanks, Christine. That's our podcast for today. If you heard something that was helpful to you, please subscribe to our podcast and tell your friends about us. It's our hope and prayer that our time together might bear fruit in your ministry as you build up the body of Christ. We hope you'll tune in next week. And in the meantime, let's keep serving each other as we together listen listen for for the the word. word.